So we've got a guy with an AR-15 with, a, like you say, a 30-round magazine who racks the gun within feet of the guy that's attacking him, and that still doesn't deter him. Uh, the fact that someone has a rifle in their hands does not mean necessarily that they're not going to be attacked. It's clear to me that it was the fight for the gun that resulted in the use of the lethal force. We don't control, you know, how other people think and feel and will react. This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West, Steve Moses, and Sean Vincent. Exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, I'm Sean Vincent. Thanks for listening in to the podcast. Today is part two of our conversation about the Dean Cummings case. If you have the opportunity and you didn't listen to it, stop right now, go back, listen to the last podcast. This podcast will make more sense if you do, but if you can't do that, you don't want to do that, here's what you need to know. Dean Cummings shot Guillermo Ariola on his property in remote New Mexico back in February of 2020. Dean was interested in buying the property from Guillermo Ariola. Guillermo Ariola allowed Dean Cummings to park his fifth wheel on the property for $300 rent a month so he could explore it, decide if it was really something he wanted to buy. He decided that he did. The two men had become friendly during that time, but once there's a contract on the property, things started to get a little bit more contentious. Uh, Dean had been allowed to use Guillermo's you know, manufactured home that was out there on the property. He was out there one day when he didn't expect Guillermo to be there. He was scoping in his rifle so he could hunt for Barbary sheep out there on the property. He left the rifle leaning against the wall, went back to his fifth wheel, surprised to see Guillermo come when he wasn't expected. Guillermo started unloading groceries in his home. Dean went over there to talk to him. The conversation turned to some of the problems that they're having with the contract. Dean accused Guillermo of being a scammer. According to Dean's testimony, that made Guillermo outrageously angry. He started attacking him. He had a canister in his hand, some some mace, some pepper spray. At some point in this melee, Dean was sprayed with it. He fell to the ground. He tried to get away, scooting down the hallway. He went past his rifle. He grabbed his rifle. He got pushed down a total of three times. Guillermo was trying to strike him with this canister that was in his hand. He tried to get his hands on the rifle and take it from Dean. That's when Dean decided he needed to put up or shut up. He said, um, if he gets this rifle, I'm dead. Uh, and so he was able to get control of it, fired number of rounds, 11 rounds total. Two of them struck Guillermo fatally. What happens next is a little unusual. Cummings, uh, believes he's been hit with this pepper spray. He calls it a chemical agent. Uh, his eyes are burning. He's having trouble breathing. It's on his skin. His skin is burning. He's convinced uh, and sure that Ariola is deceased. He takes his time. Dean does uh, rinsing off his eyes. It doesn't work. It makes it sting more. He gets soap. He cleans that off. He cleans off his skin. He takes off his clothes. He rinses that. He puts it in the back of his pickup truck. He gets control of his breath, uh, and that all takes some time. 
eventually he knows he needs to contact the authorities. He's on a property. They don't have cell reception. There's this peak about four miles from this remote New Mexico property where they know they can get a cell signal. Uh, a motorcyclist passed. Dean tries to get his attention. He fails. He gets out on the road. He ends up connecting with this cyclist uh, at that peak. He says, I can't get cell signal. Here's what happened. I've shot a guy in self-defense. Can you call it in? That guy calls 911. There's a few emergency phone calls. When Dean is able to get bars on his phone, he calls in his own 911 call. They're remote. He asks this witness if he come back to the property to be a witness for him to see the site. He does. He sees this dead guy. He leaves. Dean waits hours, it seems, for police to arrive. When he finally is concerned that they're not coming or that there's been a miscommunication, he decides he's going to go back up to that peak, call him back where he can get reception. Quarter mile away out the property, he encounters law enforcement. He turns off his truck. He listens to their commands. He turns himself in. You know, he, he, he submits to their authority is what I mean to say. He declares self-defense. He says that he feels devastated. He points out evidence that he thinks is critical to his self-defense claim. He cooperates in every way. Uh, but he is arrested nonetheless. A grand jury charges him, indicts him for second-degree murder. It sets up uh, a long prosecution over two years. There's mental health issues that come up, and there are questions about whether Dean was competent at one point to stand trial. We talked about that in the last episode. It doesn't come up much today. Uh, so today I'm joined by Steve Moses. He's a CCW Safe contributor. He's a well-respected firearms instructor. Of course, Don West, who is National Trial Counsel for CCW Safe and in my opinion, a legendary criminal defense attorney with huge experience in self-defense cases. We're going to talk about this case, some of the issues we didn't get to in part one. Uh, keep your ears open. We're going to talk about a big thing in this case. Maybe never would have happened if Dean had properly stored and handled his rifle in the first place. Um, it, here's a real important thing. Uh, Dean Cummings ended up being a fantastic witness for himself when he took the stand in this case and his testimony fit the physical evidence and was a huge part of why he was acquitted in this case the the prosecutor struggled to cross-examine him and there were motions for mistrial uh which is a fascinating quirk part of the the legal drama of this that don and i nerd out about a lot uh and then you know there's something that happened all those behaviors that I explained post-incident, the defense attorney in this case, Nicole Moss, argued were the things that an innocent man would do, not a guilty man. And we talk a lot about consciousness of guilt uh, and how that can affect a uh, defender's self-defense claim. Uh, in this case, we have consciousness of innocence, I think. We'll talk to Steve a little bit more about safe gun handling when it comes to rifles and self-defense scenarios. Let's get to it. Thanks for listening in. Here's my conversation with Steve Moses and Don West about the Dean Cummings case. I want to ask you, Steve, Cummings essentially admits on the stand that he made a mistake by leaving his rifle leaning against the wall. He just did not expect 
Ariel to come home at that time. He was unexpected. He usually wasn't there at that time of the day. Uh, so he thought it was fine there. When he was back in his trailer, he had left his rifle in Ariola's house. He comes home, he starts unloading groceries. He's like, oh, I, you know, the rifle's over there. I'm not comfortable with it there. And they happened to be there when the fight broke out and it became part of the fight. And I, you know, I don't, there might not be a whole lot to say on that other than I think all those other people, Don, who testified that they had an encounter with Adiola with pepper spray, survived the encounter, and so did Guillermo Adiola. In this case, you put that attack, and there happened to be a rifle with a 30-round magazine laying nearby, and it, now it became a deadly encounter because the rifle was there, arguably because it had not been properly cared for when it wasn't in its intended use. You know, it's, it's interesting that there were some indications in the trial testimony that there was nothing that Cummings could have done to stop Areola's attack, even if the attack was basically with his hands or the canister or the spray, because of the way when Cummings was challenged by, on cross-examination by the prosecutor about the gun being loaded, Cummings responded by saying, when he knocked me into the hallway as I retreated towards the bathroom, I racked the gun. So we've got a guy with an AR-15 with, a, like you say, a 30-round magazine who racks the gun within feet of the guy that's attacking him, and that still doesn't deter him. That tells the person being attacked a whole lot about the person that's attacking, whether they've lost their mind, whether they are overcome by rage or stupidity, but nonetheless, that makes it pretty clear in my mind that this guy isn't going to stop because he's afraid of getting shot. Do you think so, Steve? Uh, I, I believe so. It, you know, again, coming said I was knocked down. I suspect a lot, a big part of it was less, not that so much he was knocked down, that he stumbled is what I think when he was coming, you know, going backwards. Uh, I don't think that he anticipated using that AR-15 for anything because, as I understood, it had two scope uh, covers that went over the ends of the scope, the objectives of the scope that he had actually attached with electrical tape because they didn't fit properly. And so I suspect that he you know, saw that rifle. He was in fear of being sprayed. He went ahead, grabbed the rifle. And again, I have no idea, you know, what Guermo is doing at this time. Uh, it almost appears to me that Guermo is not continuing. I mean, he's, he's not progressing with a continual assault where he's constantly applying forward pressure to Cummings. You know, maybe spray, stop, move some more. You know, it just seemed to me like there was a, these little small breaks in the action in which the distance between the two parties uh, must have increased because otherwise I cannot imagine that he would have given Guermo, I mean, coming, he would not have given Cummings the chance to pick up that rifle and rack it if he was basically just right on top of it. I have a, I have a question for you about that. I'm not particularly familiar with the firearm that is at issue, but I'm wondering, is that a firearm where you could put a full magazine plus one 
could you have a round in the chamber plus 30 in the magazine, so effectively having 31 bullets? Uh, it's, it, it, it's doable, uh, but most people do not do that unless they're anticipating shooting it immediately. Uh, it's far safer to go ahead and just store the gun. Uh, ideally, it shouldn't even have a magazine in it if you don't have control of it. But I guess maybe the next best thing would be to have the magazine in there and leave the chamber empty. Yeah, I think that's what he says he did. What came to my mind was, we don't know because I didn't hear any evidence. If I missed it, I'm sorry. But this is kind of a comment on the inadequacy or the sloppiness of the police investigation. That was the sort of thing they wouldn't have figured out, as far as I can tell. They know how many shots were fired because they have the casings and they have the magazine. But even that got confused at trial because they brought in two magazines. One didn't even fit the gun. And I'm getting the impression that if the state could have proven that he had the capacity to fire 31 shots because the magazine was full and there was one in the chamber, that would have contradicted his own testimony that he racked the gun when he stumbled backwards and go a lot more toward their theory that he was planning or preparing in some way to kill Ariola at some point. So uh, but that's, that's sort of the point of the evidence here is when you have contradictory testimony or incomplete testimony, you have to turn to the physical evidence to try to get those answers. And because the physical evidence was either untested or contaminated or just wasn't even properly collected for further analysis, you can't go to those sources and prove whether someone's story is plausible or credible <clears throat> or simply made up and without the ability for the prosecutor to do that. And clearly they were incapable of doing that with the physical evidence because of the way the evidence was handled, that it wasn't tested properly or even tested at all. Uh, you get to the point where it's just two people arguing with each other. You did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. You know, kind of stuff. And the prosecutor can't win that fight. They have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Cummings did not act in self-defense, even though they tried desperately during the trial to suggest to the jury that all they had to find was Mr. Cummings somehow was acting unreasonably. That's not the test. That's not the test at all. On second-degree murder, they just have to find basically that he killed somebody um, if without um, it being justifiable or excusable, meaning not in self-defense or not accidental. And that's about it, frankly. If for manslaughter, they have to prove that he killed somebody, not excusable or not justifiable, but under what New Mexico calls sufficient provocation. So a second-degree murder becomes manslaughter if it's sufficiently provoked, which is what we often hear as heat of the moment, sudden uh, attack, heat of passion kind of stuff that will mitigate from second degree to manslaughter. But otherwise, unless um, they had some pretty compelling evidence that 
it wasn't self-defense. They were stuck with his story, and they should have known that right from the beginning. That was no secret, even though the state complained that he didn't claim self-defense. It's evident that he did, and I would think that in those situations, all the resources and effort would be you try to collect evidence that supports or refutes self-defense because, because that becomes the whole issue of the case. It's no longer a whodunit. It's just a question of what were the circumstances. Well, and Don, to that point, like the defense attorney, when she stood up to begin her 42 minutes of closing arguments, reminded the jury what you just said, that the state's job is to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that it was not self-defense. Right. So there's sort of like that logical twist there that I think a lot of prosecutors who don't deal with self-defense cases struggle with. And in this particular case, Dean Cummings' story of what happened did not significantly go against any of the credible physical evidence that we had. So essentially, he had a story that he told relatively the same at the beginning on the stand and was reinforced in his cross-examination. It never really changed, and none of his details in any credible way disputed the evidence that we had. So he's got a real solid story. The prosecutors would have to have uh, their own story that fit the same evidence to even try to break that. And they never really had a, a logical narrative of what happened beyond this random, like, he set this whole thing up as an excuse to murder him, which didn't seem to make sense. Yeah, there was never a prosecution theory that, like you say, that was consistent with the evidence, either from the beginning or even there at the end. I suppose they hoped that it would reveal itself during his cross-examination. That's the only opportunity where what they didn't know about his mental state or his behavior or his thinking or his reasoning could come out, but that would require a much more effective cross-examination uh, and much more compelling presentation to, you know, if you think about it, guys, the, the, the prosecutor was stuck with a very challenging uh, job of trying to break him. If you think about that, you know, it had to be a Perry Mason moment, didn't it, in some ways? Well, I was thinking she was he looking had, for the, did you order the code red to get him rattled and say, you're goddamn mm -hmm. right I did, but he wouldn't take any of her bait. And she, you could see her just melting down that, that nothing mm -hmm. she tried would work. And if she got anywhere close, the defense would object and throw her off her game. Yeah, and, and I think that also was compounded, the ineffectiveness of that in terms of its impact was compounded just because of some of the procedural stuff and some of the missteps that were made early in the prosecution's cross-examination that probably turned the judge against her. And the judge, although was very calm and collected and clearly impartial, nonetheless was always calling them to the bench to address evidentiary issues. And there were at least two incidents during cross-examination which were a solid basis for a mistrial, one which was almost automatic and the other which should be taken seriously. And that's how it started off. So um, the prosecutor was kind of knocked on her heels right at the beginning when she 
made a misspoke. I don't think it was necessarily designed for the way it came out, but nonetheless, when she made the comment early in the cross-examination, when one of her questions were obje was objected to about some personal background on Mr. Cummings, she made the comment in open court, well, the state didn't have the chance to interview Mr. Cummings. Well, that's a clear no-no legally. That's a comment on the defendant's constitutional right to remain silent. It's just like a police officer can't say, I asked him questions, but he wouldn't answer me. And because she started off that way, there was a big flurry of activity. The jury was sent out. There was an admonishment of sorts. And I think any lawyer would have been thrown off their game had they had to deal with that early on. Because there was a call for a mistrial immediately. The defense yes, said, yes. I want a mistrial. And if you're, you're, your most important cross-examination in the whole case starts out with you giving the other side a reason, a viable reason to call a mistrial, that shakes your nerves, doesn't it? I'll suggest to you an experience that I had where I had a comment on right to remain silent by a police officer in a case I was trying one time. And the judge heard it, made it pretty clear that it was inappropriate, but denied the motion for mistrial, just as this judge denied the motion for mistrial. We went on to try the case. Cummings was obviously acquitted, but my client was convicted at the end of this case. And the judge, I think, was probably waiting for the verdict because after the verdict, he said, you know, I've reconsidered my ruling on the motion for mistrial based upon that improper comment, and I'm going to grant it. So I think he was trying to get off the hook, you know, if the guy was acquitted. But I swear, then we tried the case again, and he was acquitted. So whether that was the so key made, thing. So it that, could have made a difference. You never know. Yeah, but it, it, it could have. But I, I think if I were the defense lawyers, I would think I had a new trial in my back pocket at that point, especially in a close case with some of this contentious evidence. So they didn't have a whole lot to lose at that point. I think they had one in the bank. But the other problem that she faced pretty quickly in the cross-examination the was right. the prosecutor, when she was questioning Mr. Cummings about the call he made with the reporter, and they were talking about the content of that and Cummings said, I can't remember or wasn't particularly responsive to one of her questions. And she wanted to impeach him with the recording. And she said, would you like to listen to the jail call? So by that question, she just told the jury and the world that he had been and still was in jail effectively. You can't do that either. You can't tell the jury that someone's in jail because that means they can't get bond or maybe they've got other charges or who knows what and how that could be interpreted. So that was a big misstep as well. I, I loved don't his know response that it... to that question, too. He's like, not particularly. <laughs> yeah. He was a cool cool cucumber without being snarky or condescending, or he was sincere in his response, but he, he wasn't letting her push him around either. So I, that's a high marks for his. And that, that's a credit to the lawyers uh, for preparing him. It's a credit to himself for not getting flustered and of course, as he sort of alluded to it, I, he's had the last two and a half years to think about stuff, right? So he had gone over this a few times in his, in his mind. You know what I'd like to talk about now? The defense lawyer in her closing arguments 
said that everything Dean Cummings did after the shooting were the actions of an innocent man. We've talked on this podcast before about consciousness of guilt evidence. Defenders who didn't call 911 right away, they ran, they hid the weapon, they did things that make them look like they didn't act in self-defense, often when, when we think pretty clearly they did, but they realized that there's a homicide and that they're in trouble. Dean Cummings knew, he actually told the witness that he found, Macaulay, he said, I'm in a bit of trouble here. He knew this was going to be rough. He knew there was going to be an encounter with police. He wanted it to be safe. He knew he wanted to contact authorities as soon as he could. If he had, in fact, been pepper sprayed, he tried to get control of his breathing and the effects of that. But then he left the property, encountered a witness, told the witness what had happened, asked them to call 911. And then as soon as he had bars on his phones, he made his own call. There were a total of four calls, I think, that the witness made. And then he said, I want you to come back with me and see the scene I want you to, you know, see what happened so that someone else can say what happened. Um, and then he made his weapon safe for law enforcement when they came. He didn't want to get shot. And then when he did meet with them, he turned his diesel truck off so he could hear their commands. He followed all their commands. He was taken safely into the custody. And then he showed them the key piece of evidence that he thought were important to reinforce his self-defense claim he made his self-defense claim right away it was self-defense it was self-defense he he expressed his regret that the tragedy happened even though the officers tried to say he didn't they have audio of him saying that he was devastated right and then in cross-examination the prosecutor tried to pin him like well you didn't say it was mace or things that he didn't say he actually tells her well i didn't want to make too many statements without a lawyer in court. In a lot of ways, his behavior is kind of as we would prescribe a defender behave under certain circumstances post-incident. At least as they were told to us. Do you agree with that? His behavior afterwards was, was pretty... It, it certainly was the actions of a someone who seemed innocent, yeah? I, I think so when you identify each individual step, what he did, what his objective was in doing it. I, I think where the prosecutor was taking exception was how long all of that took. Sure, he went to call 911. He uh, did call 911. He apparently expressed the appropriate emotion, although limited, when he spoke with law enforcement and that sort of thing. But it was probably 45 minutes before he left the trailer. He Another 45 minutes or so, as, as I think he described it, as he was talking with this witness, David McCullough, the motorcycle guy, before he essentially told him what had happened and asked McCullough to to make the call to 911 because he had service, his explanation for that was he didn't know if McCullough was friends with Ariola, so he needed to sort of check him out and know whether he could trust him before he told him that stuff. And there's some question about how long that whole sequence took from beginning to end, and 
even though he may have taken many of the steps that we would suggest anybody should take, what was his thinking? Why would it take so long? What had He had plenty of time to do anything that he wanted to do, whether it was stage the scene or to orchestrate his story or any of that stuff. There was plenty of time on the clock. But at the same time, when you look at it piece by piece, he did sort of all the right stuff. I've, I've been thinking about that. And the one thing that stands out to me that I think might help explain a lot of that from his thinking. And that might very well be whether he absolutely believed that uh, Guillermo Ariolo was dead, that the wounds were immediately fatal, and that there was nothing at all that could be done to help him, that he was absolutely gone. And if there was somebody half a mile away, it was still too late. Well, if that was his thinking, then there really wasn't as much of a hurry to do these things as the prosecutor or even we might think there would be. There was no no reason to get help medically. And now the next part of it was notifying the police and making clear what had happened uh, in, the, in, in the sequence that was comfortable for him too, being kind of a strange... What stranger in a strange land? You know, you know that book, of course. You know, he, he's you know he's not from around there, at least not in recent years. He doesn't really know anybody. He just shot and killed a guy that's apparently from, except for the drugs, alcohol, and mace, otherwise a pretty upstanding member of the society. And uh, I can see how he would be a little confused. And we also know that he may have had some other you know, mental health issues on board that might affect his linear decision-making. But So I heard the, the defense lawyer say that stuff. I agree in principle. And I think that maybe if he absolutely knew there was no medical attention that could be helpful, it doesn't seem quite as odd that things happened as slowly as, as they did. I don't know if that makes sense to you guys or not. It, it, That's it the does. only thing I can come up with. And, you know, and when she pushed him on... The time between when the shooting happened, according to his recollection, and when he finally met up with Kevin McCullough or David McCullough, uh, he said, "Well, you know what? It must have happened later. I didn't have a watch on, so I must have been wrong." So, so the timeline even shifts. The 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 responding officers didn't even know how long they were out there, or even when the sunset and there's a lot of space. The timeline's a little hard to pin down. He gets some benefit that, there. That whole idea of law enforcement, the officer on the stand who could not testify even close when the sun sets in February. I missed it by several hours, right? So when, when you put that kind of shadow on, on one officer whose testimony would be critical and then you have other officers not following through on obvious tasks that would be done from a forensic standpoint. The whole, the whole prosecution case is clouded. So none of the accusations they make in challenging what Dean Cummings may have said or even done at certain points has any rebuttal because the, the investigation wasn't done effectively. There was nothing they could do to respond to his statements unless he you know, did, him, did himself in, and we know that he didn't. 
Steve, I always like to take any example or any opportunity in these cases that we explore to talk about proper gun safety and proper gun handling. You've told us over and over again the four you know, foundations to safe gun handling. And there was this insane incident during the cross-examination of Cummings during trial where the prosecutor takes this this rifle that was the, out of evidence and wants she's going to play Ariel he wants she wants him to reenact the shooting with this actual rifle that he had used he's uncomfortable with it at, at some point they ask the bailiff to cl- make sure it's clear that there's no bullets in there and then uh, and then they shut the whole thing down before they get too far into it even the judge is like wait a minute this is a terrible idea would you take a minute and explain how many of the four fundamental rules of proper safe gun handling were violated during that insane exhibition in the courtroom? Well, let's, let's start with number one, treat all guns as if they were loaded. Number two, never point the muzzle at anything you're not willing to shoot and destroy. Number Just ignore three, my laughing in the background. Keep your finger <laughs> well, well, maybe, maybe he wanted to shoot and destroy the, the prosecutor in this case, but, but shouldn't, shouldn't, yes. Keep your finger off the trigger until your sights are aligned with the target with the intent to shoot. And number four, which is my favorite, be sure of what lies around and behind your target. And uh, I think that she did a stellar job of hitting all four. So when the judge is on the other side of the prosecutor, he's like, oh, wait, wait a minute. Maybe this is not a great way to do this. Um, you, you know, uh, I think that demonstrates how few people understand firearms and understand how they work and understand how to behave with them. That, that a prosecutor who's... I'm going to guess uh, prosecuted a firearm-related homicide before in her career would would do this. Uh, and th- th- there's a lot of ignorance about firearms involved, even in people involved in these homicide cases, right? We come to it now with a lot of understanding on how self-defense works. Steve, both tactically and practically in your life, and Don, both from a criminal defense perspective, but I'm willing to say that if you put the three of us in any courtroom with a self-defense trial going on, we probably know more than everyone else in the courtroom, including the judge and the lawyers, unless they're of a particular caliber with a certain experience. Would you disagree? Oh, I completely agree. Uh, One of the things that really uh, struck home with me from the perspective of being a concealed carrier is watching the uh, prosecutor's uh, closing argument and the links that she would go to in order to basically uh, cause this man to be convicted of a, you know, of a second degree felony. Some of the things that she said made no sense to me whatsoever. Uh, many of it was prob- would have probably been believed by the jury had there not been a competent uh, defense attorney to refute that. And it really drives home to me why having coverage with a company like CCW Safe is so critical for concealed carriers because now you can see what that prosecutor 
may how they may build a case and direct it. And if you don't have the proper people in place that have experience and the ability to handle some of the things that she said, uh, I think you could very well find yourself uh, convicted of a crime and perhaps spending many, many years and perhaps the rest of your life in prison. Don, they some something got prejudiced in the system right off the bat that they were convinced this was a murder and they were just going to prosecute him no matter what, no matter how bad their evidence was, no matter how bad the investigation was. I think they just were hell-bent on it. They were going to see it through one way or the other. But by the time you get done with this trial, I find myself in a little bit of disbelief that they would have gone through all of that considering the the evidence that they actually had. And, and you know, to Steve's point, they just latched onto it and went for it. And mm-hmm. here's the deal. Mm-hmm. We know that this guy was in jail for almost two years while this was going on. They're, they're not going to... They're not going to apologize for that, are they? Now that he's out, <laughs> they're not. He has no real recourse. Uh, they're not going to give him money. They're not. They're not going to make up for his lost income and the the loss of life he had over those two years. They're gone. Absolutely gone. As if his life is two and a half years shorter. Although I now, but I suspect it's considerably shorter than that as a result of what he's gone through the last two and a half years. That's a hard two and a half years. Every day waking up not knowing whether at the end of this process you're going to get to go home or you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison. And Steve's point is well taken. Whether it was politically driven, I don't know whether there was some aspect to that. It could have just been uh, Ariola was, was our guy. He was our local guy. He was our resident. And this is somebody from out of town who uh, shot and killed one of our upstanding citizens and we're not going to let him get away with it. And once they bring it into the courtroom, of course, we all know that before it gets into the courtroom, the prosecutor is completely in charge. They're handling the grand jury. They're marshalling the evidence. They're putting the probable cause affidavit together. They're objecting to bond. And there are some things the defense lawyer can do, but not very much in the scheme of things. The best thing the defense lawyer can do and that is to zealously defend the case and hope for an acquittal doesn't happen until the end of that process. And uh, he was stuck, stuck there for two and a half years. Of course, some of it had to deal with his own mental health issues and other, no doubt, delays related just to the trial of a high-profile case. But he doesn't, he doesn't get that time back, that's for sure. He doesn't have a job. He has limited access with friends. Maybe his access with reporters should have been even more limited, but nonetheless, uh, he's living in a bubble, you know. So that's a hard, hard way to spend your time pre-trial. I do not have insight as to why he didn't have bond. I would have thought he would have had bond, but on a very serious crime, typically first degree and sometimes second degree murder, it's within the discretion of the court. And there are plenty of people that either don't get bond because the offense is serious and they don't have sufficient ties to the community, or there could be a high bond set without sufficient resources. I wouldn't have thought that was his case, but I don't know, except I do know that he spent about two and a half years before he got to go home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so 
one of the things we're always looking for lessons for concealed carriers. This case is crazy, and, and it might. I think a lot of people listening to this will think, "Well, I'm not going to be out in the middle of the desert <laughs> with a, a a guy who's drunk with uh, cocaine and and getting a fight with a rifle." That doesn't seem to apply to my home defense concern or my personal defense concern for the city that I live in. But uh, Don, you and I have talked about this a lot that we go back through, and there's usually a decision that the armed defender made before the use of deadly force. That would have changed the scenario, and as a, uh, you know, Steve, you talk about a lot about having situational awareness, and deselecting yourself as a target, and living your life in a way that you're going to avoid unnecessary conflicts that are going to lead to potentially the use of deadly force. So in this case, um, I think that he acknowledged that he shouldn't have left that rifle with a full magazine just lying around if that rifle had been properly stored you know in his trailer with you know maybe with a magazine not in it not in a place where it was accessible like that then it doesn't come into this in that there's probably never a a imminent fear of death or great bodily harm that results from this little uh fray that they get into do you think i'm wrong there steve or no, I, I, you know, if you have an issue with someone, you know, going to them and then calling them a scammer is almost never a good idea. <laughs> and, you know, we just we just talk about it. I know that people think that I should be able, you know, we have free speech. I should be able to tell people what I think and that uh, I should be able to do that without fear of any consequences. And we don't control, you know, how other people think and feel and will react. And so he certainly could have handled the whole thing where there was some sort of contract issue in a different manner. And certainly, you know, not going over there and getting into what appeared to be a heated argument. And, you know, that's especially true for people that have concealed handguns and where they say, yeah, I, I, I knew I needed to confront my neighbor and I took my gun because I just didn't think it would be safe. Well, if you think it's not safe there uh, without a gun, uh, you're not safe with a gun. And uh, I think this is just one of those things where probably the location of the gun maybe pretty much contributed to, you know, what took place. Uh, had that gun not been there, Probably wouldn't have been a completely different thing. Of course, we don't know that, but you can certainly understand that if you've got this guy here who thinks he's, you know, being sprayed, uh, he's fearful of this other guy. Apparently, he's got some paranoia going on. Uh, it's not unreasonable that if he's found himself in that situation and he saw that gun, he may have thought that gun was the only way he could have solved that situation. And he may very well have thought, that uh, grandma would have instantly backed down. But as we saw in the Rittenhouse trial, uh, the fact that someone has a rifle in their hands does not mean necessarily that they're not going to be attacked. Since we're talking about the gun and avoidance and the absence of the gun may very well have prevented uh, a fight for the gun. And it's clear to me that it was the fight for the gun that resulted in the use of the lethal force that, but for 
uh, Areola trying to get the gun that the other circumstances probably would not have justified the use of deadly force. But uh, at least there's a better argument on that. Uh, what about the 11 or the nine shots that, that missed? I know Cummings said a couple of them were fired on purpose uh, but then it seems like there's half a dozen or more that were fired because Ariola was only hit twice. Does that tell you that Cummings was probably firing warning shots? Or does it tell you there was really a struggle that was causing the gun to fire wildly? Or does that in and of itself sort of upset the uh, the credibility of the explanation that Cummings gave about how the how the shots came be fired. I'm going to assume, first of all, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the shots that hit Areola were the last two shots, or at least the one to the head would have been the last shot, because that would have been incapacitating. The one to the chest would have taken a while, but I'm going to assume that all but those two shots were probably misses. What do you think? I, I, I think so. I tried to pay careful attention to see where the bullet strikes were, uh, I would have liked to have seen what the exterior of that uh, trailer or mobile home looked like in terms of where those exits were. It looked to me like there were several hits on that floor that were almost splashes, which indicated that they were shot at an extremely, you know, low angle. Uh, that is not downward, but maybe almost horizontally. I have no idea where those shots went. I suspect that uh, they were all fired maybe from the same position or largely from the same position simply because much of that brass ended up over next to the wall in an area where uh, uh, Guillermo expired. As a matter of fact, it's literally almost in a big blood pile. And so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. firing those guns, uh, the gun probably was nearly horizontal. I'm just, again, speculating, you know, the rounds would come out, perhaps hit the wall, come back, hits, you know, uh, grandma's body. And that's why we ended up with such a weird brass pile that's all in a small compressed area against that wall. You know, if I could answer that question, but without more information, I'm just unsure. But here's why you can't answer that question, Steve, is because the state didn't do uh, forensic reconstruction of the shooting. The defense hired their own expert that had limited access to the evidence well after the fact. Uh, nobody went out to do a reconstruction of that scene and try to figure, answer those questions. And that was part of the defense that, 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 that it was incomplete and a bad investigation. And we, we can't answer those questions. And if you can't answer the questions, the state can't prove its case, uh, in my view, in in, in in a situation like this. I, I would like to second Steve's comments, though, about the value of CCW Safe or a like company in a situation like this. We know this case took two and a half years. Had Dean Cummings been a CCW Safe member, his lawyers would have been paid in full. The expert witnesses would have been paid. Investigators would have been paid. Had he had bail uh, up to the coverage limits of his plan, the bail bond premiums would have been paid. And uh, what I'm guessing, just looking at the resources, the amount of time, 
the lawyering and the evident preparation by the defense, uh, we're talking several hundred thousand dollars when you add it all up. And it's worth every penny, frankly. Look, Dean Cummings now has the rest of his life back. The money isn't the important thing, but if you don't have it, it gets pretty important. And especially, as Steve points out, you can't control the prosecution. Dean Cummings had no say in whether he was prosecuted at all and no control over pretty much how long that prosecution took. And then fortunately to his benefit, ultimately, uh, it wasn't particularly effective. So uh, I, I second Steve's comments about there are situations where having a legal expenses plan like CCW Safe uh, is that catastrophic coverage that, that you need if you're faced with one of these catastrophic events in your life. After we recorded this podcast, I had a nice email exchange with Dean Cummings' lawyer, Nicole Moss, and she gave us a little insight into the pre-trial work that she did and some of the things that really made a big difference in the case. So Don and I got back together to talk a little bit about some of those insights that she gave us. Here's me and Don West talking about some of the legal minutia that we think is interesting that contributed to the acquittal. I mentioned to Nicole Moss, who was Dean Cummings' lawyer, that we felt like a lot of her pretrial work, a lot of the work in this case, most of the, the important work in this case was done before trial, which is which is often the case. And the folks who casually watch trials don't necessarily know how much work goes in before you get to picking a jury and opening arguments. And I'm pulling up my email here. She agreed that most of that important work was done beforehand. And she says specifically the critical work was their investigation of the decedent, Guillermo Ariola. They tracked down numerous people who had been victimized by Mr. Ariola, uh, particularly with the, the mace, people who had been maced by him. And they were able to have a few of them testify at trial. So that means, Don, that they hired, I'm going to assume, an investigator who I can imagine in my mind was out driving around in the desert interviewing people where they lived on these uh, remote properties, uh, finding who knew him, who had had an interaction with him, and started getting stories of people who had had confrontations with him until they found someone who had been maced and was willing to come testify at trial about that. That's a huge day if you're the defense attorney in this case, right? Uh, that's the big day. Yeah, that that's the home run that you hope for in a case that might otherwise be a lot closer, a lot more difficult for a jury to to resolve. Now, I'm just thinking as you talk about it, what that experience must have been, of course, for the lawyer getting that news, but also how about for the investigator? That's pretty cool too. Good old fashioned investigative work. It could have involved sitting at the diner in whatever town was nearby, just getting a hint from somebody or a clue or hearing a story. And they even wind up developing evidence that in addition to Mr. Ariola using his pepper spray or mace against several people, he committed what I think would be the unforgivable offense of uh, spraying the dog. So (laughs) dogs and children, right? As soon as you offend. uh, Yeah. Or or, or, or then like you say, hey, I, I... 
you know, he, he mentioned one time that he had attacked somebody's car with a hammer. Do you know this? Oh yeah, I know who that is. I can introduce you lately when you have that moment. And if I was, uh, if I was going to make a, a TV dramatization of this, I'd like to imagine, we know that in this case, uh, there wasn't cell reception out at the property where the shooting happened. And so Cummings had to drive some four miles away to this peak where they knew they could get cell reception. They used to go out there to make their phone calls. So I like to imagine that this investigator had to drive. He's got this great mm-hmm. news. He knows he's just made the case up to this peak and get his stand on top of his truck to get three bars and try to. You know, it, it's fascinating, too, how that played out and they got that information and it was ultimately communicated. That would have been through the efforts of the private inve- uh, the defense team that hired the private investigator mm-hmm. to do that. Interestingly, I think that had the state, had the prosecution uncovered that evidence, they would have been required to disclose it sure. under some uh, prevailing constitutional provisions, the, the, the idea of Brady versus Maryland, exculpatory things, uh, information that's developed. We have no reason to think that's what happened. We think the defense team discovered it through their own effort and hard work, not that they were given that information Mm-hmm. by the prosecutor, which, and I think in New Mexico, unlike just a handful of states, there's no discovery depositions in criminal cases. So that's just good hard work, kind of peeling off the layers and uh, chasing down leads and coming up with uh, that notion that you kind of get a string that you pull on and then you just keep developing mm-hmm. and developing it until you either strike out or you hit the home run. You know, and, and sometimes we, we talked in the, the main part of the podcast about how uh, the, the state or even like the, the, the law enforcement agency investigating this seemed prejudiced against Cummings from the outset. They, like, I think they went into this investigation thinking this guy murdered it. And the defense attorney suggests during her closing arguments, because it's this other expert that they hired that recreated the, the fight with the rifle at the end. That's right. And, mm-hmm. and it turns out the, the law enforcement and the, the prosecutors never hired their own expert to forensically recreate ballistically how this, sh- this the shooting went. So they didn't have that evidence. So the defense team found an expert, hired them, and she felt, she says in her email, that uh, their expert, Aaron Brundell, that they hired, proved invaluable to defense because he went and he was able to show, explain why these two cartridges expelled this way instead of where the other nine went in the opposite direction, explain why these two bullet holes on the floor would have been done in such a way and how that might indicate where things went. The evidence that he prepared reinforced Dean Cummings' story of what happened and the state had no evidence of their own. They had no expert of their own to refute any of that. They missed that opportunity. And she suggests in her closing arguments, the reason they didn't do it is because they knew it would be bad for their case. Maybe the reason it's they didn't an- go look for these character witnesses for Ariola is because they knew it would be bad for their case. That's a, I think that's a very interesting observation and certainly is true in my experience that on both counts, that you won't, don't want to dig in a place where you're afraid you'll find something that uh, you That's don't want to find. That's good for the find. other side, yeah. Especially that you, if you have to turn it over, of course. 
And what's interesting, um, you, said, you talk about the Brady material, that it's not reciprocal, not in not in criminal prosecutions. The the prosecutors, if they have something that could be exculpatory, they have to turn it over. As a defense attorney, if you hire an expert uh, and you don't really like what they have to say, you're not obligated to turn that over to the prosecutors. Typically, that's correct, yes. You, you have the right to consult with experts, provide them information under the work product privilege for them to reach an opinion. And then you have the choice, if that opinion is helpful, whether or not to call that witness. And if the opinion is not helpful, uh, you have the, choo- the, the right not to choose to call that person. And you usually have the right not to disclose that person and their findings to the other side. Yeah. But in, in all of this costs money. It costs a lot of the attorney's time and it costs the experts that they hire their time and resources. It's expensive is what I'm trying to say. And it's one of those costs that a lot of folks might not think about that can make a murder trial so expensive. You know, the, the it was outside experts that prove critical to Cummings defense, and those are folks who expect to get paid and they can be expensive. You know, you see that over and over again, especially someone who doesn't have hands-on experience in the criminal justice system thinks that once you've hired the lawyer and paid the lawyer, the cost is over. And it may not even be the biggest cost of the case. Forensic experts that you're talking about, ballistic experts, uh, pathologists that kind of fall into that area of expertise for which their opinions may be admissible because the judge kind of performing this gatekeeping role decides they are sufficiently qualified to offer opinions in their areas of expertise. Well, it takes a lot of time and effort uh, to put all of that together, meaning a lot of hours And of course, the people that have that kind of expertise, that have invested the time in their education and training and are experienced and have good reputations, aren't cheap. They may cost just as much per hour and often more than the attorneys. So tens of thousands of dollars are not uncommon for experts in a case. And maybe even an individual expert could cost five or $10,000 or more, depending on their role and how extensive their their work is, and yet is absolutely critical in maybe providing that single piece of evidence that the jury needs to understand the case fully, maybe from the defense standpoint to make it absolutely clear that there is reasonable doubt, that there is significant question about what happened and how it happened. And of course, in a criminal defense case, a criminal case, a self-defense case, the state has to prove the crime itself, but in addition to that, has to prove that it was not in self-defense. So an expert, like we're talking about here with ballistics experience, uh, forensic crime scene reconstruction, can, pro- can fill in those gaps that the jury has. And then you have the psychological power of it looking like the state either didn't do their job or trying to play hide the ball because they didn't offer the information. They didn't give the jury what they really needed to make a reliable decision. And they go to the defense. The defense puts on someone who's qualified and compelling. And who knows what saved the day because the case was pretty lousy for the state no matter what. But you can lose those cases if you don't do your job. And I, uh, my hat's off. I'm 
commend the the defense for being as capable, professional, and thorough. You know, the thoroughness has a lot to do with it. And back to your point, if you don't have the money, then you don't have all of the pieces of the puzzle that you need. And uh, And before we wrap up, I want to brag on you a little bit, Don. In the, in re, when, when it comes to when it comes to the importance of experts, right? We, we've identified that they're hugely important and can make or break a trial. But I think if you're going to be the type of attorney who is good at finding and qualifying experts, you almost you have to have the mental capacity to become a uh, amateur enthusiast in the subject at hand, you need to know enough about voice recognition to know what the hell your expert's talking about. You need to know enough about ballistics to know what your forensic reconstructionist is talking about. And that requires a lot of homework. And I think there's a lot of great trial attorneys who are on the great on their feet in the courtroom, but to have an attorney who can sit down and has the capacity to ask the right questions to spend the time to really do the homework to understand what's going on so that you can make best use of that expert and an expert doesn't have to they can't just be good at what they do they also have to be good at testifying in court and they need someone who's going to give a solid direct examination of them to get the best out of them and if the members of CCW safe don't know this they're lucky that you're going to be <laughs> that you're on the team and that and that's one of the things that you'll do as sort of the player coach in these cases is make sure that the experts that we need for a case are there and that they're going to have the opportunity to showcase what they've got for the benefit of our case. Well, that's very kind. Thank you. I I think that it's important when you're touching on any area of expertise for the lawyer to fully appreciate how much they don't know. That's hard for most lawyers. <laughs> lawyers think they know everything, and uh, if they don't, they'll fake it. But that's that's pretty damaging if you're putting on a case that's heavy on uh, forensic stuff. So the first thing is knowing what you don't know and then finding someone that can help you teach at least enough to become literate in it. So oftentimes when you're having when you're involved in a case that needs expert testimony, there's really two areas of expertise. There's what I often do is hire the consulting expert. If I think there's an area where expert testimony may be helpful, I hire a consulting expert to help me understand to the extent that I can what the issue is, how to ask good questions, maybe help me prepare for depositions or cross-examination. And then there's the question of, well, is there an issue that we could benefit from using our own expert in court that is possibly the consulting expert that's helped educate me, but it may very well be a different expert that I would call a testifying expert, where the person is engaged specifically to understand the case, to form opinions, and then to be able to effectively communicate that to a jury. And as you point out, the ability to communicate, withstand aggressive cross-examination is, is a different skill necessarily from what it takes to understand the issue and even teach somebody about it. So yeah, exactly. that becomes that becomes really important, sure. And and, is, and expensive. Uh, expensive, complicated, and hard. Which is why we can talk about it 
endlessly, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, since we're talking about self-defense cases, we we can touch upon just very briefly. uh, There's, of course, the crime scene type experts. You might have a blood splatter expert, a firearms expert, if the operation of the gun is at issue, a ballistics expert, maybe a uh, tool mark identification expert, someone might be able to identify fragments or shell casings from a particular gun. From the medical side, if there's a lethal shooting, you're going to have a forensic pathologist talk about cause of death. It might be even more important to talk about trajectory of the, uh, of the bullet, maybe even more important yet to talk about gunshot residue, tattooing, stippling, the sorts of things that will help make it clear how far it was from the muzzle to the person. Is it a couple of inches? Is it several feet? All of that sort of combines to either corroborate or refute witness testimony. And unless you've got an expert that's way out there in an untested or un, uh, an unsupported area of expertise, and sometimes that's what the gatekeeper, the judge does, is they say, no, that's not that person isn't an expert or that's not an area for which expert testimony is admissible yet for one reason or another. And they can exclude all of that stuff. And the goal is to allow only the information that's reliable and the experts that are recognized and acknowledged in their field to be allowed to testify. But you put all that stuff together and then you have a way, uh, you have a forensic roadmap in which to compare the testimony And um, that's, I think, how you get to the other side, especially when there are conflicting witness statements. Sure. And if if you really want to make it fun, you can just have the high-profile trial of the century and then be right in between the scientific standards that the court's going to use to decide whether your evidence is admissible or not, right? And and that's where you are when you have things like voice identification. Uh, Even these days, some of the, uh, the tool mark identification, the uh, the, the, the tool mark meaning the, the frag, shell fragments, for example, whether they match up and whether you can say they came from the same gun or not. All that stuff is subject to being challenged, and there's a few things that are pretty much well, well settled, but you'd be surprised how often whole areas of forensic expertise are discounted. We, we've seen that somewhat in some of the tool mark stuff. We see it in handwriting, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not nearly what it used to be in terms of its likelihood of being admitted. Anyway, before we get too distracted, this has been a, an interesting conversation for me, an interesting case, and uh, I've really enjoyed talking with you about it, Sean. I know your background and your expertise puts you right in the courtroom from the very beginning, All even the- well before the case gets to the courtroom, and helping identify those issues that are important to the success of the case and how that may relate to helping identify those jurors that you think will be able to understand the issues and hopefully sympathetic to the case. Frankly, we won't deny that we look for jurors that we think will be favorable to us, but we sure want to get rid of those that we think have a bias against us. Yeah. And if we think we have a good case, we just want people who can be fair. And if in a lot of these, yeah. in these self-defense cases, when we're going to trial, we pretty much are convinced that we have a great case. If we can just get somebody who will listen to it fairly and understand what's going on, we feel like we're going to get a good, re- good result. So lots of fun, Don. 
Good deal. You know, you know, our kind of fun. The macabre <laughs> <laughs> homicide fun. <laughs> All right, guys, that's the podcast for today. Thanks for listening through to the end. We're busy finding more cases to have more conversations and find more lessons for concealed carriers. Stay tuned. Until then, be smart, stay safe, take care. Except for the drugs, alcohol, and mace, otherwise a pretty upstanding member of the society.